you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't, the scripture is printed in your bulletin on page 6. There's also a place to take notes on page 7. Before we actually look at our text, though, I want to just kind of introduce this to us so we know why we're looking at this passage. Uh, we are looking this month at the Bible's teaching on the doctrine of adoption. Okay, this isn't just human adoption, but this is, we're talking about God's adoption. Uh, because the Bible teaches that when we trust and follow Jesus with our lives, God forgives our sins and he adopts us into his family. This is why we call him Father, because the Bible says that he adopts us. Uh, we're part of his family, and that means that he's with us, we're part of his culture, we're part of his ways, um, he's always with us. And in the first uh, first Sunday of May, I think I've got a review here. Here we go. In the first Sunday of May, we saw that God as adopting father means that there is no fear. That you actually can call God dad. We saw that in Romans 8. That God wants us to call him dad. And to be that close and that intimate with him. God's our loving authority, we said. And then last week, Michael taught us that the implications of God's adopting love are that you are now a son, a daughter, not a slave. You're a son or a daughter. You're no longer a slave if you are trusting in Jesus. And I want to tell you how important this is, this idea that you're a son or a daughter, you're not a slave. Um, a couple weeks ago, I listened to a commencement speech. It was given by the American author David Wallace Foster. He gave this speech in 2005, and the speech is fascinating, especially when you hear it and you understand that David had no personal faith or religion. Okay, but this is what he said to this group of college graduates. Listen to this. He said, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. He said, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, whether it's JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess, or the four noble truths or some set of ethical principles. Okay, the compelling reason to choose one of these things is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Okay, he says the reason why you might want to worship a god of some sort or follow a set of principles is because anything else, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And he goes on, he says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. He said it's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. You'll never feel like you're beautiful enough. Then he says, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. He goes on, he says, worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will always need more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid or a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is what he says. Anything else will 
true and alive. And he says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. He says that the kind of worship you just gradually slip into without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. I think that's a brilliant analysis of the human condition in our culture today. I think it's profound that David Wallace Foster said that worship, worshiping something outside of you, worshiping God, is the answer. Um, and it's interesting because knowing this is not enough. Just recognizing this isn't enough because three years after this, David Wallace Foster committed suicide. I know that some of you are being eaten by your life. You're being eaten a lot. Some of you feel like slaves and not children. Some of you are children of God and yet you've forgotten and you're living as though you're slaves. Um, I spoke to someone this week, and she told me that she hates networking events. She hates networking events. And I was surprised because she's such an amazingly personable person. You know, and she said, well, I hate them because I have five seconds to justify my existence. It's like, oh, man, I feel that. I feel that. Well, the passage that we're going to look at today, it's about the right kind of worship. It's about worship that doesn't enslave, but it sets you free as children of God. It's worship that doesn't eat you alive, but it actually fills you with life so that your cup fills to overflowing. Okay, that's what we're going to see today. And, and what this passage is going to help us understand, first and foremost, is that worship shows who you are. Worship shows who you are. So if you're looking there in your bulletin, um, we're going to start with verse 16. So it's kind of there in the middle. It says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then look at what it says. It says, for we are the temple of the living God. See that? It says, we are the temple of the living God. In the very center of this passage, it says it so clearly. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's interesting because the temple of God, what is the temple of God? Well, in the Bible, the temple was really for two things. It's where God lives, and it's where God is worshipped. It's where God lives, and it's where God is worshipped. The temple was the dwelling of God on earth. This is where you could find God. <clears throat> What's interesting about that is that means that we are where God dwells on earth. You thought about that before. So verse 16 says, we are the temple of the living God. So we are where God dwells on earth. <laughs> God's presence on earth is in the lives of people who are Christians, who are following Jesus. We are where God dwells on earth. And it's interesting because then it's our lives where God is worshipped. Right? If we are the temple, then we're where God lives and we're where God's worshipped. And so our lives are expressions of worship. And so when we gather together on Sundays, we gather to be the temple. 
why the Bible says we're like stones being fitted together in a new temple in 2 Peter, 1 Peter 2. And God dwells among us. And this is kind of remarkable <clears throat> because what God is saying here is, uh, is not just that He is with us, but He is in us. God's in us. He dwells in us. Last Sunday, um, we had that multi-faith forum where a rabbi, an imam, and a pastor, professor, spoke about what Christianity, Islam, and Judaism have in common. It was so interesting because um, the Jewish rabbi and the Muslim imam both agreed on, on this one particular thing. They both said, look, here we, we don't know about God. Okay? We can't know. God is mysterious. He's unknowable. Um, but here's one thing we do know, is that God cannot become human. We don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know about God. But here's what we do know. God cannot become human. And it was interesting because I thought, well, interesting. Like, really? Can't. God can't become human. I was praying about that, and I was thinking about it, and I realized, wait, is it strange that Christianity believes that Jesus was God become human? Well, yeah. <laughs> it is strange. Um, is it unthinkable that a perfect and holy God would humble himself and enter into the brokenness of our world? Yes, it is. It is kind of unthinkable, but is it impossible? No. It's not impossible. It's improbable. It's astounding. It's extravagant. I mean, it shows just how far God will go to love us it's not impossible. In a mystery that we don't fully understand, Jesus was human and yet was offered worship and he didn't turn it down. Jesus did the things that God was supposed to do. He was worshipped and honored for it. He died and rose again. And, and it's funny because then this last week, I was listening to a pastor who was actually speaking to a group of Muslims. Okay? Different pastor, not from the multi-faith world. Pastor, and one of the Muslims got up and just said, what is the true gospel? What is the true gospel? And here's what he said. He said, the gospel is the story of love. And he told about himself. He said, I pursued a woman in my life. I pursued a woman, and when I thought, when I thought that my love had captured her, I asked her to marry me. And she said, no. And so I redoubled my efforts, and I pursued her with all of my heart until my love overwhelmed her. Until my love captured her. And when she was convinced, I asked her to marry me again, and this time she said yes. And he said, the reason this is like the true gospel is because in order to prove my love, to show my love to her, I couldn't send my brother. I couldn't send a prophet. I couldn't send anyone else. I had to go myself. Friends, that is why God had to become flesh. He had to go himself. And in flesh, God was showing the extent just how much he loves us. 
Jesus himself, when he tells the parable of the prodigal son, he is the father that is running down the road and embracing tax collectors and sinners, adulterers, people who are struggling with life, people who struggle with sin, who are broken in addiction, or people who are so hell-bent on materialism and success and career. They need to be saved too. Right? There's different ways to be lost. You can be the younger brother who's off feeding pigs, or you can be the older brother who's slaving, trying to earn his standing before his father. And Jesus is the father coming, coming, seeking reconciliation, demonstrating just how much he loves. In this passage, if we are the temple of the living God, then what we see here is that Jesus didn't just come to be with us, but that God now lives in us. We are the temple of the living God. And so worship shows who you are. When we gather together on Sundays, when you worship Jesus personally, you are manifesting your identity as part of the temple So our worship shows us who you are. Our worship also shows us how to get God, right? If you are, if you don't have this kind of relationship, this verse, verse 17, actually teaches us how to get God to be your father. Okay? And this is really important because it's easy to misunderstand verse 17. Let's look at it and I'll tell you how. Um, verse 17 says, if you want to be the temple of the living God, God then calls us to be holy. Verse 17 says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And so the idea here is that God is holy. Right? God is perfect. God is righteous. And if the temple is the place where God lives and where God is worshipped, then God wants a clean house and pure worship. Okay? Now, what's vital in understanding verse 17 is to know that verse 17 is a quote from the Old Testament. Okay? It's a quote from Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 11. I'm going to show that to you. That's what it says there. It says, it's similar. it says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Okay? Now, what's vital to understand is the context that Isaiah was writing in. Because if you can understand the context of Isaiah, you'll know why this verse is being quoted here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Okay? In Isaiah, at this point, God is announcing Israel's end of slavery. Okay? I know most of you understand the Exodus, right? You know that God was in, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And God brought them out in the Exodus through the Red Sea, brought them to the Promised Land. Well, things didn't go so well in the Promised Land. And so Israel continued to disobey. They continued to defile themselves. They really sort of, it was kind of like they said, yeah, God, we'll marry you. And then they were unfaithful. They were horribly unfaithful. And so God divorced his people. Because of their unfaithfulness, God sent them out. And they were brought into captivity. It's like they went back to Egypt, but Egypt wasn't around then, so they went to Babylon. Babylon was like sort of the world power at the time. And so Babylon came and conquered Israel and brought them into captivity, and so they found themselves to be slaves again. 
because of their unfaithfulness, because they rejected God, because they didn't honor Him. This isn't about like they committed one little sin. I mean, these were egregious violations. They committed spiritual adultery. They were abusive in their relationship with God. And so they were in Babylon and they were suffering there. They were suffering there under, they were in exile, they weren't home, right? I mean, think about like, think about if the Taliban shows up and just carted us all and brought us to Afghanistan. And we were living in Afghanistan, apart from family, apart from friends, apart from money, apart, we, were, we were slaves there. I mean, this is what Israel was dealing with. And so, and God sends prophets to help Israel understand what's going on. God wants to make it really clear why they're there. And then there's a point in the, in the book of Isaiah where there's a shift. And God begins to say, but this isn't going to last forever. This isn't going to last forever. Your captivity, your exile is going to last 70 years, God says. And then I'm going to call you out. And in Isaiah 52, in Isaiah 52, God is saying, look, now's the time. Now's the time. Now it's time for you to leave. It's time for you to leave your exile in Babylon and come home. It's time to leave your exile in Babylon and to come home. <clears throat> and so Paul's not quoting this at random. Like Paul's quoting this because that's the message that he's trying to give the church. Okay? Paul is saying, in Jesus, God has fulfilled your exile. Okay? He's saying, look, your exile isn't Babylon, it's not Egypt. Your exile is sin. The things that eat us alive. Your exile is that you're pursuing after things that can't satisfy. Right? Your exile is that you're ignoring God in your life. You're not honoring Him in the areas of your life. And God is saying, now it's time. That's what verse 17 is about. God's saying, look, none of these things, money, relationships, career, appearance, popularity, none of that stuff can make you happy. It's not designed to make you happy. C.S. Lewis said, if I find inside my heart a desire that nothing on earth can fulfill, then I conclude that I must have been made for something great. And so God says, in verse 17, he says, go out from their midst. Be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing. Um, yeah, there it is. You know, three commands in this verse. He's saying, look, don't follow the path. Don't follow the people who try to find meaning outside of God. Don't follow after them. Stay pure for those in, from those influences because there's no life there. There's no hope there. It will eat you alive. Now, what's interesting is that Paul's direct context, when he writes in 2 Corinthians, Paul is combating false teachers in the church. Okay? And people had come after Paul left. Paul founds the church. He establishes the church. He leaves. And these other people come in and they try to take over the church. And one of the things that they said one of their biggest arguments against Paul was they said, look, Paul can't be a true apostle because he suffers so much. Paul can't be an apostle because he suffers too much. 
can't be following after Jesus, who suffered his, who suffered for the sins of the world, because Paul is suffering like Jesus suffered. It's their argument. I mean, we kind of laugh at it because we can see it from perspective, but how many times do we think that when suffering comes in our lives, that we've done something wrong? Sometimes you feel that way. Life is overwhelming, something awful happens. Something that you didn't dream could ever happen happens. And you think, you know, what have I done? Paul saying, Paul would say to us, if you're suffering today in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. It could mean that you are following Jesus. And he's asked you to pick up your cross and follow him. And so what Paul is telling this church, he's saying, look, you need to separate yourself from these false teachers. Says their message and mine, they don't go together. We need to reject their false teaching and return to the gospel that I have preached to you. That's why he says in verse 14, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's calling these false teachers unbelievers. He's saying, look, they're not even part of the family. They're not even Christians. And so don't yoke yourself together. Don't hitch your life up with them. Because you're not going in the same direction. He says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is a name for Satan. It means worthless. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement is the temple of God with idols? That's what Paul is saying. But we are the temple of the living God. So he's saying, look, don't go with them. Don't hit your life up with them. Don't partner with them because they're not going in the same direction. They're not teaching the same thing. And when you do that, when you, verse 17, go out from their midst, be separate from them and touch no unclean thing, then God will accept you. Now, so here's what's important uh, to understand with the context of Isaiah, right? Because what, what, what God is saying here um, if you don't understand the context, then this verse could sound like, if you clean up your life, right? If you fix yourself so you're not so unholy, then God will accept you. And that's not what this verse is saying. That's what it kind of sounds like. But if you understand the context of Isaiah, right? And you understand that that's the point where God is calling his people to leave and to come back home. That this is a call not to fix yourself. But it's a call to come back to Jesus. To come back to the gospel of God's amazing, extravagant grace. And one of the sealers on this, in terms of knowing for sure that this is what Paul means, is that Isaiah 52 verse 11 is right before Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is where it says, oh, I missed it. Okay, Isaiah 53 is where it says that the Messiah will come and he will be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. And on him, the punishment for us was laid. 
and it brings us peace. Through his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so verse 17 is not a call to be perfect, but it's a call to repent. It's a call to turn from our sin and turn toward God. Because in Jesus, God is calling us to leave our life of sin and to come home. God is saying, look, these things each you alive. Come to me. Come back to me. And I will be your God. And you will be my children. And so this happens. When you believe in Jesus, when you begin to follow Jesus, but it's an ongoing reality in the life of God's people. Because though many of us have left that old life and committed to following Jesus, we sort of feel this pull back, right? It's hard. It's hard not to go back and to think that the approval of people is what gives us meaning. It's hard not to go back and think that, you know, it's leaving our lives to work out right so that people think a certain thing about us. It's hard not to fall into that. It's hard not to sacrifice our family or our children for the sake of our career. But these things are difficult. They're challenging. Right? And so, so what do we do? This is why we worship. Okay, this, this is why we worship. And this is why every seven days, your dad calls you and says, look, I know life is hard. I know you're not perfect. Come on. Come on, let's remember what's really important. Let's remember that life is so much more than what we see. So God calls us to worship. He calls us to worship. And then when we get here, let me show you this. So this is what we do, right? So God calls us, and then we sing. Right? Because how can we not? How can we not sing and praise and it's like, oh yeah, that's right. God is my father. God's love is never ending. God never changes. And so we sing about that stuff. We sing and we worship. We remember. That's our response. God calls us and we worship. We offer our lives to Him. We do what God has made us and remade us to do. Okay, and then and then God cleanses us, right? He says, okay, now look, let's come clean. I'm your dad, I love you, just admit it and I'll forgive you. Right? And so we confess our sins and he assures us of his adopting love that will never cast us off, that will never forsake us. Right? And then it's consecration, this is God's word. Then we open up the book and dad begins to remind us the truth. He reminds us of what he has said. This is, this is his, these are his ways. This is his instruction. This is his son right? who has saved us. And so we open the book and we look at it. We spend time because God has a lot to say to us. And we see how it connects. And then we commune. Right? And we go to communion, which is the Lord's Supper. Right? And this is where God says, as real as this bread and wine are, as real as these things are, that's how sure you can be that you are my adopted child. You are what you eat. You are feasting on my son. It's like an adoption ceremony. 
God says, I know where you've been. Right now, here's where you are. And then we have a commission, which is the benediction. This is where God sends us out. Where God sends us out, and he says, now go and show my family. Go show what it's like to be part of my family. Go show my family and grow my family. And he sends us back out and go with another week. Go for another week with his power, with his assurance, with his love. Equipped, built up, loved. And it's cool because it's not just on Sundays. Because as we go, God goes with us. This is so helpful for me. I mean, this happened to me this week. Okay? Michael, I heard, I wasn't here at Uptown, or I wasn't here at Downtown, but I went to Uptown in the evening, and I got to hear Michael's sermon. I got to hear him preach that I am not a slave, but a son. And this was so vital for me. It wasn't just theory, because then Monday morning, Monday morning, I had this really crazy and very disturbing dream. It was... It sort of was a, a really kooky conflagration of two different things that are causing significant pressure in my life. Um, and I woke up, and it was 4.47 in the morning. And I was bothered. And all of a sudden, I wasn't just bothered by these two different areas, but I felt the pressure of actually six different things coming on me. And I, I don't know if you ever feel that way. You wake up, and all of a sudden, it's like... Oh, oh, wait, oh, yeah, yeah, there's this. Oh, there's this. And, oh, man, what do you about that? And, oh, man, I don't know what to do. And, this is, and so I realized I needed to get up. I wasn't going to go back to sleep. And so I needed to pray. And so what did I do? I grabbed my CBR journal. I, I didn't have a scripture. I just needed to go to the Lord. And so at 447, I started to pray. And, um, and as I began to pray, I remembered the sermon from the day before. And I remember what he said. I'm not a slave, but I'm a son of God. And so I prayed. And this is what I prayed. I said, Dad, I need you to be not just my dad, but I need you to be the God of the universe. I need you to be God of my life, the only one I answer to. I feel very unsettled. And I listed out these six areas. And I prayed like a son. I prayed like a son. I went, I said, Dad, I need you to be here for me. And as I listed these six areas, I began to pray about them. And God, our, our Heavenly Father, my Heavenly Father, began to share with me truths from His Word, scriptures that spoke to every one of those six areas. It was amazing. Like I said, God, this is an issue here. I don't know what to do. And I felt like God said, well, what about this? I love you. Okay, what about this? God said, well, what about, why don't you do this? Why don't you try this? Or here's how I think about this. And just one by one, I felt my Heavenly Father share with me His perfect wisdom. I didn't hear anything audibly, and just in case you're wondering, some people feel like they do. That's not how it is for me. I just had scriptures come to my mind or ideas that I knew were based on the scriptures. And what's interesting was the, the, the issues, they weren't all solved. But going through this time of prayer, I remember that dad's in control. 
that he is in control and that he loves me. It, I'm under his loving authority, and he gives me his perfect peace in every circumstance. And so, two and a half hours later, at 724, um, I wrote this. Thank you, Dad and God. You met me. You loved me. I'm so grateful for your gracious favor. I am renewed and made whole. <coughs> this is our God. What we do on Sundays teaches me how to meet Him every day. His presence with us now it teaches us how much He loves us on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday.